Be reading from 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 8. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have also been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And I'll pray. God, we again just thank you for what you recorded for us. Lord, you, you, you're infinite in your knowledge and wisdom, and you could have written much more than what you did. This is what we need. This is what is essential for our faith. It's all we need. Lord, you've, you've given us a complete, sufficient revelation for the faith that you have called us to. And so we thank you, God, for this, and, and we ask that you would teach us and guide us into all that is true and right and honoring to you. In our hearts, Lord, we'll just be yielded to you for you to work in us what, you, what pleases you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, we've um, been making our way through 1 Corinthians and took a pause last week for the baby dedication and for Sanctity of Life Sunday. And so I wanted to come back here to chapter 13 where we left off. And, and two weeks ago we looked at the indispensability of, of love, just how vital it is for the, for the body of Christ and the characteristics of love. And Paul's point is, is now being made at the end of this chapter is that he's not dismissing spiritual gifts. He's not saying they are not important. He's certainly not saying they are not for today. But he is saying that they have to take their proper place. And that if the church is to be characterized by anything, as far as our community and how we are known and relate to each other, it ought to be um, for its love. That we love Christ and we love each other. And, this, and the spiritual gifts would fall under that. And so he, he makes the point here that love will never fail. That it will endure forever. And then he says that's not true of spiritual gifts. That they will not endure forever. When we are in our glorified state um, and we are with Christ on this planet and everything has been made right, there will not be the need for spiritual gifts. They are going to pass away. But love will not pass away. It will endure forever. So this raises some questions. One is about just what is the nature uh, in particular of the two gifts that he's going to focus on from here on out and that those gifts are tongues and prophecy. So we'll need to get a little bit into definitions and explanations for those. But the other is the question of of what has ceased, if anything. And that's a big debate. 
And if, if, um, uh, if you have had the experience or do have the experience of speaking in tongues, um, it can be very emotional for you when you hear someone say, that gift doesn't even exist today. And you go, well, then what's happening for me? Because this is my experience. And so the last thing that I want to do is, is, to, is to plow into this subject and not um, manifest the love that Paul's been talking about in this passage. And so Paul didn't mean for this to be a passage that is, is condemning or censorious, but one that puts things into perspective. And so he says, um, going back to verse 8, love never fails, but that's not true for the gifts. And he mentions three in particular. If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. So we got our first problem is, are these three gifts, three that are the only three that are going to cease, or, is the, or are these just representative of all the gifts? I think he's making three gifts as representation of all, personally. But there is great debate on this. Great debate on it. The verb tenses here are, are um, I'm sorry, the voices here are, are, are very um, significant, perhaps, um, where it says prophecy, they will be done away. The voice there is passive. The same thing with knowledge, it will be done away, passive. So not of their own accord, but, but by God's doing, those two gifts at least are going to come to an end. The middle there um, of the three tongues, they will cease, and that's in the middle voice, and it seems to say of their, of their own accord is the point that is often made. They will just gradually, of their own accord, stop being in existence. But again, if that's true, have they ceased, and what do we do with tongues today? So to get more help on this, thankfully, Paul has a little bit more to say. And he says, for we know in part, amen, and we prophesy in part. Whatever prophecy is, he hasn't defined it. But we know and we prophesy in part. We don't fully know. But when the perfect comes, so everything hangs on that, whatever the perfect is. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So the perfect is usually described as typically one of two things. When the Bible is complete, and one word for perfection is completion, when the canon of Scripture is complete, when the New Testament has finally been written, that's when the perfect comes. You have the whole complete revelation of God, and there is no longer any need for prophecy, knowledge, or tongues. And so that would be the view of of um, traditional dispensationalism. I went to Dallas Seminary, as you know, and the official position of the school is, would be that the perfect came with the completion of the New Testament, and at that time, these three gifts, sometimes called signs gifts or, 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 or the miraculous gifts, they ceased, and they no longer were in existence in church history. But then he continues, and he says... 
Um, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, when the perfect comes, face to face. Now I know in part, but then, when the perfect comes, I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. And so we go, if the perfect is the completion of the New Testament... Then according to this, when the perfect comes, we ought to see clearly and know clearly, to know fully, even as we've been fully known. And yet we come to this passage and we have a lot of problems with what Paul's trying to say. At least I do. Maybe you know perfectly. I don't. Ask my wife. Um, we, we don't know perfectly. We don't know fully. And we have so many different doctrinal disputes, over a thousand different denominations just in this country alone. If we knew fully, and assuming that there is no pride and arrogance to mess up um, how we think and behave, then there ought to be no disagreement as we come to Scripture. But there are still tremendous disagreements. And so it, it doesn't seem that the perfect relates to the completion of the Bible. But the perfect will be that time when we know fully and, and we see fully, clearly. And I think, and, and actually most people would say, that would relate to when we are with Christ. Then we will know as we have been known. Then we will see everything clearly. And so until that time, prophecy and knowledge and tongues still exist because they don't go away until the perfect comes. And as long as we are living in a time of imperfection, of incompletion, then there are going to be these gifts and all the gifts. One um, writer um, Gene Getz, some of you older folks might remember who he was, started a lot of church, churches in the United States and was himself a Dallas Seminary grad. And he wrote, not in keeping with Dallas Seminary at all, and said, if any of the spiritual gifts have ceased, then we really have to be consistent and say all of the spiritual gifts have ceased. And I believe he's correct on that. So my, my own understanding is that we are still waiting for that time when we will know fully and see clearly. And so all the gifts are still in existence today. God could be free because he's God to withdraw anyone if he chose to do so. But there's nothing here in the text that would indicate, I don't believe, that we can expect that, that these three in particular would be removed. Yet, and this is a big yet, when we look down through church history for the last 2,000 years, it is by everyone's um, assessment, tongues has been virtually non-existent. Even the charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters readily recognize that. And I'm not saying that it was nowhere, anywhere after 
Paul's day because there were instances where it, it popped up. But the early church fathers didn't have any firsthand knowledge of it. Irenaeus and Tertullian, they said, we've heard about it, but they never personally saw it. Chrysostom in the 4th century, 300s AD, he said it had ceased. And then there are some, you know, just there's always exceptions. And so there, there are some little places here and there where it would seem tongues might have popped up. But it's not by any stretch of the imagination clear. And so even the, the, the charismatic Pentecostal movement, they recognize this because they date our, our current place where we are, and there's even discrepancy on this, as being the third wave of the Spirit's movement. You may have heard of third wave teaching or third wave churches. And what they mean by that is that there have been, that we are in the midst of the third movement of the Holy Spirit. And you go, okay, when do the other two movements start and what characterized them? And they said the first wave was right at the turn of the 20th century, very early 1900s, when tongues broke out here in the United States. First in Kansas, and then later in California, Southern California, and then also in Houston, Texas. And so that was the rise of the Pentecostal movement, and Pentecostalism is called the first wave. Well, Pentecostalism gradually shifted into the charismatic movement, and that was in the 1960s. And in the 1960s, there was... um, there wasn't just the emphasis on tongues, but there was more of an emphasis on the gifts in general, as well as words of knowledge or prophecies. And that was the second wave. And then the third wave was in the mid-1980s, early 1900s, with the rise of the Vineyard Movement. And, And John Wimber was the man who's principally associated with the start of the Vineyard Churches. And um, Peter Wagner, who was a professor at Fuller Seminary, labeled this, this latest movement as the third wave of the Holy Spirit's movement. And this is clearly um, recognized and embraced by the charismatic Pentecostal churches. So they go, we are in the third wave. I had, came across one article um, by Charisma News and the, and the charismatic Arthur there said that we are actually in the fourth wave now. And the fourth wave is dealing more with societal change. Um, and it is focused on the churches of Bethel Church, Bill Johnson's ministry in Redding, California, and um, Hillsong in, um, in Australia, as well as a church in Dallas. And he listed three churches as the principal movers of the fourth wave that he says we are in now. All of that to say... Even those theologians who look at, in the, in the charismatic Pentecostal circles, who look at tongues, date it as starting in 1900. So they are acknowledging tongues, if it was existent, was cutting a very low profile for 1900 years. Nobody says it was just not there, but it was minuscule at best, so that the charismatic Pentecostal movement itself says tongues began in 1900 here in the United States. So what do you do with that? As I've said, I believe there's a valid gift for tongues today. 
But I do believe that most of what we're seeing is not consistent with what Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians, especially chapter 14. What else, what, the, the, the general tone here is very clear. What, what, however, whatever tongues is, however you describe it, it should not take priority over the other spiritual gifts. It should not characterize a church. And love should be what characterizes a church. And once again, I would stress what I, what I mentioned two weeks ago, that love is not the only test of a church's spirituality. Keep in mind that the church in Corinth has already been described by Paul as being a carnal church. And a carnal church can be charismatic. Not every, just the evidence of spiritual gifts is not an evidence of spirituality, in other words. You can be very carnal and look spiritual on the, on outwardly because of tongues. And Paul says, don't confuse spirituality with tongues. Because this is a carnal church and tongues has taken way too big of a role. The main test, one of the tests of a church and its spirituality is its love for Christ and its love for its people. But that's not the only test. And so we would be amiss, greatly amiss, to say all that matters is that we love each other. That is not all that matters. And John was very clear in his epistle that it also is important for a church to to. to to know whether it is functioning as God has intended it to function, there is, a, there is a doctrinal test. And that is, what are you doing with the person of Jesus Christ? And if Christ is not foremost and not being regarded in, for who he truly is, then that church is not functioning as God intended. There is also a moral test, and that is obedience to what we profess. And so there is a doctrinal test for a church's spirituality. There is a moral test for a church's spirituality. And there would be the, the, um, the, the test of the grace of God as evidenced in our love for each other. All of those things, and there are others that Scripture speaks about, that are markers for whether or not we are functioning as the Lord intended. And to take one spiritual gift and to say, this is the marker of spirituality, is to miss greatly Paul's point concerning the spiritual gifts. In chapter, at the end, uh, before I get to chapter 14, the end of chapter 13, he says there in verse 13, but now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now abide, I believe Paul's saying, and always for eternity will abide. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. For all of eternity, faith will be in existence. We think faith is, is you know, seeing what it, the, what, believing in what can't be seen. Well, how would faith continue to exist if we're going to see clearly in our glorified state? Because faith is not just seeing the unseen. Faith is living in dependence and in trust. And the creature 
is always dependent. And we will for all eternity be creatures dependent upon God. We will always, for all of eternity, be living in a place of dependence and trust in the Lord. Hope, the same thing, will exist for all of eternity. Paul's going to say in chapter 15 coming up, he says, if we are those who hope only in this life, we are most to be pitied. Hope is not something that is just for this life. We know that we will know fully, but that doesn't know we are going to know everything. We will not have omniscience when we step into the glorified state because we will always be finite. God alone alone is infinite, and so we cannot possess infinite knowledge while being finite. So there are going to be things, I trust, that we're going to be learning and hoping to learn all throughout our lives. I think I would like to maybe learn how to fly, at least a plane, maybe just fly. Wouldn't that be something to look forward to in eternity? God says, you know, if you've been here, you know, after you've learned a few other things, you're going to have the opportunity to fly. (laughs) Wow, that's going to be great. I'm going to buzz everywhere. I'd like to have the opportunity to learn how to maybe make furniture or you know, maybe even how to sing and dance. I mean, that would be really miraculous to see me <laughs> sing and dance. Maybe I can do that in heaven. And maybe it won't all happen the moment we step into our glorified state, but there'll be things that we continue to learn. And we will have the hope of learning, the hope of discovering and finding out more and more. Because as long as God's infinite and we're finite, there's always going to be more. And there's hope. That comes with that. And then there's love. And of these three, faith, hope, and love, love is the one that is the at, an attribute of God. God is love. And so it could be, that's why Paul is saying that is the greatest of the three. Because this is the one that actually characterizes God himself. Love. I'll never forget that time in, in seminary when a professor made the observation that, that a human being cannot live without the presence of all three of these, faith, hope, and love. And that if any one of these three is, is truly removed from a person, that person will die. That he cannot live without some measure of faith, hope, and love. And I've, you've been here long enough, you've heard me say, I, I've seen this in regard to hope. You probably have as well. If you're in the medical profession, you've been around hospitals and nursing homes, you know that there are the doctors and nurses will tell you that if a person loses hope, they will die. And I've seen it, and so have you. There's no hope, and they die. And they are not dying because there's a physical reason. They just give up hope. We have been made to be sustained by these three things. We do not need spiritual gifts in order to live. But we do need faith, hope, and love to live. And so when a church begins to focus in on one thing like tongues or prophecy or anything else, and that becomes the test, and you don't have it, well, that can be very crushing and defeating. And when you come to church because you need faith, hope, and love, and yet you don't measure up to everybody else because you don't have the experience that everybody else is having, one that Scripture doesn't even say that you have to have, 
then church can have the exact opposite effect that it's supposed to be having. Instead of building and encouraging faith, hope, and love, it's robbing you of those things because you have your attention on something that God never intended for you to have. So he says, pursue love. Pursue love as a church. And again, the, 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 um, these are corporate, these are corporate emphasis here. It's not, I personally pursue love, though we should, but corporately pursue love. And corporately desire earnestly spiritual gifts. So he doesn't say just ignore the spiritual gifts, but he says love should be first, spiritual gifts second. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now that's the second time he said that. Going back to the end of chapter 12, verse 31, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And now he's saying one of those greater gifts is prophesying. So what is the gift of prophecy? I don't know. Nobody knows. But we, I can tell you this. I gave you some ideas. I can tell you what it is not. It is not revelation that is on the same par and the same authority as Scripture. It is not. Because this is the final, complete revelation of God. And anything that God may be saying today to you or to the church as a whole has to be measured and has to be put in subjection to the Word of God. Prophecy simply does not have the authority, and Paul is clear on this, of what the Word of God has. Very simply, prophecy, and it's not, in just a nutshell, boil it down, reduce it to its essence, is God speaking and you, speak, and you saying what God has said. It's hearing from God and speaking as from God. It is not about foretelling the future. It can be. But you need to know, every one of the 39 books of the Old Testament was written by a prophet. And so every book of the Old Testament is prophetic because it's written by a prophet. And yet many of the Old Testament books have nothing to do with the future in them. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, much of the historical narrative has nothing to do with the future. No prophetic revelation, future revelation is being given. And yet it's all prophecy. How so? Because men heard from God and spoke as from God. That's the essence of prophecy. And that you can reduce down even more. Look over with me to Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. This has become my go-to verse when it comes to prophecy. Revelation 19, 10, the very last statement there. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I know Revelation was written by John and not by Jesus, but I, you know, I remember you know, all the years that Kelly was teaching at his hill and teaching here at Bernie Bible, kept saying it's almost as though it was written by the same person. God wrote the Bible, okay? And God wrote 1 Corinthians, and God wrote the book of Revelation, so there's no contradiction. And when it, So what is prophecy? It is hearing from God, speaking is from God, but what is specifically 
It is the testimony of Jesus. Now here's the thing. When the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, which is at the moment that you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are now in a relationship with God that is more intimate than anything that any of us can comprehend. Where the Spirit of God, and Paul says this already in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, the Spirit of God is the only one who can understand God. And the Spirit of God can communicate to the spirit of man. And sometimes you don't even know he's doing that. But it'll always be in a way that bears testimony of Jesus Christ. Because the Spirit is always witnessing of Jesus. So you can just be in a conversation with somebody, and all of a sudden the lights come on in their heart, and they go, wow, I've heard that for a thousand years, but that's the first time I've understood it. And it's because God has spoken to them. And it could be through you, and you didn't even know it. There was a girl at his hill many years ago, and she was not saved and knew she wasn't saved and just couldn't understand. And so every time there was a guest speaker, they'd trot the guest speaker out to talk to the girl and get her saved. And, um, and she just, just couldn't get it, couldn't get it. And so one guest speaker came through, same thing. They trotted him out, he talked to her, and then he went back to his room. And, well, here she comes with the staff member, and she's going, I get it. I've given my heart to Jesus. I know I'm a child of God. And he goes, well, praise God. What happened? And she says, well, it's when you said this. And she told him what he had said. And he goes, well, praise Jesus. And then she walked off just just happy as a lark. And he turned to me because I happened to be standing there. And he goes, I have no idea what she's talking about. (laughs) He says, I don't even remember saying that. But God used him. And God spoke through him. Remember when Jesus said to to his disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? And Peter, speaking up for the rest, because he liked to do that, he says, says, they say, you're this, you're that. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looked at him and said, God told you that. Peter had heard from God and spoke what God told him to say, and he didn't even know he'd heard from God. He gave a testimony concerning Christ that he got from God and he spoke and he didn't even know that he had just prophesied. But he had. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What we see here in 1 Corinthians is that Paul says in chapter 11, he says women can pray and prophesy. But the same Paul will write, women cannot teach or exercise authority over men. Something is different about teaching and prophesying. Where Paul says, one is permitted, the other isn't. Well, if prophesying has nothing to do with foretelling the future, and prophesying is not on the same level as Scripture, and prophesying is is simply hearing from God and speaking as God chooses to speak through you, which is the birthright of every Christian because the Spirit of God is in us and the Spirit of God is communicating to us, then whether we realize it or not, many times God is talking to us and we don't have to make this all mystical and weird. But God is teaching us and guiding us and leading us into all truth. Jesus said that the Spirit would do that. And that He is convicting the world and and ministering through us to this world. 
And so if, he is, if I'm in that relationship with God where God is speaking and speaking through me, which is the birthright of every single Christian, then every Christian prophesies. And no wonder then Paul would say, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you would prophesy. Because if prophesying is simply giving testimony of Jesus, isn't that what a church should be about? Isn't that what I should be about and what you should be about? This is why I've said before, we don't want to be known for doctrinal positions, theological systems. We want to be known for Jesus and people who who know him, talk to him, relate to him and he to them. And he is free to speak and minister through them, even when they don't even know that he's doing so. And Christ gets the glory. We are about Jesus, and, and prophecy is about Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, they're speaking in tongues for the first time. And, and Peter relates that experience to Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2, and it says, Peter said, In the last days the Spirit of God shall be poured out upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And what were they doing? He says they were talking about the, the mighty deeds of God. And the mightiest deed of God is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They were talking about Jesus. They were talking about how God sent his son into this world that he might live and die and rise again from the dead so that we can have our sins forgiven and be living in a relationship with him. You know that's what they were saying. And they were prophesying. Had nothing to do with the future. They were simply giving testimony concerning Jesus Christ. And you read the rest of the book of Acts, every place they went, they were preaching Jesus, preaching Jesus, preaching Jesus. And in that sense, they were giving, they were hearing from God, speaking us from God, and it was prophetic. Every church, every church has to wrestle with where is the balance between a woman not teaching, exercising authority, and a woman having the freedom to prophesy. Every church has to wrestle with that. Some have just gone to one extreme or the other. Some say a woman should never, ever have her voice heard in a church, and the others say there's nothing that a woman can't say or do in a church. Those are the extremes. There's a balance somewhere in there, and it's hard to find that balance, and we sometimes get it wrong. But there's a balance in there that says the teaching should be by the male leadership of the church. But every person in the church should be encouraged to prophesy. But it comes down to how do you define prophecy? And if you're talking about bearing testimony of Jesus Christ, John 19.10, then amen. So this is, this is what part of the reason that I, I've felt comfortable, very comfortable over the years with having that service that we have, Palm Sunday, where we have men and women both share about what, how Christ has worked in their lives. At his hill, we have a devotion time in the morning, and it's, and it's male and female students that are sharing. Because I'm looking for opportunity where we can hear from one another. The body of Christ needs to hear from all its members. And a devotion time is supposed to be about just, this is what Jesus has been teaching me. This is what Jesus is doing in my life. And sharing that for the edification of the body. That is valid, I believe, based upon God's word. 
There's so much more to get into with tongues and prophecy, and, we'll, and we will go further into this. Um, just some more observations briefly to make about tongues. We don't, you know, there, again, there's big debate over whether the tongues that Paul is mentioning in 1 Corinthians 14 is the same tongues that we see in um, Acts. There's no disagreement the word is same. Tongues, the word, Greek word for tongues is the same in Acts as it is in 1 Corinthians. That's not where the disagreement is. But it's what's being described. Is it the same thing? For example, when we look at tongues in Acts, they are known languages. Known languages. And no interpreter was needed. Every person was hearing them speak in their own languages. That's not what we see described in 1 Corinthians. They are unknown languages. And an interpreter is needed. In Acts, people three times, and only three times, there were individuals that as soon as they received Christ, as soon as the Holy Spirit came to indwell them, which was the moment of belief, immediately they spoke in tongues. But there are other people in Acts where there's no record of them speaking in tongues. So it wasn't all people. And those that did speak in tongues, it was immediately when the Spirit of God came to live within them, and that was, and that was the indication of their being saved. The tongues in Acts was always public. There was no private use of tongues in Acts. And yet the tongues in 1 Corinthians is mostly public. Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all of you. We'll find that anywhere else in the Bible. There is no record in Scripture of Paul speaking in tongues because he didn't tell anybody. It was private. And apparently he did it a lot in private. And it was so private he had to tell the Corinthians because otherwise they might think he was just down on tongues. And he goes, I'm not down on tongues. I speak in tongues more than anybody does. But I keep it private. The tongues in Acts was... Was they were declaring the mighty deeds of God to unregenerate people by and large. Where the tongues in 1 Corinthians, they are declaring the praise of God, and it's not to people, but it's to God. All of these things show there's a difference going on here. I don't understand the difference, but Paul doesn't question it. He just assumes this is the way it is. Nor does he forbid it. When I, when I look at tongues and read about it, and I've done a lot of reading again just this week on it, and it just go, oh, my words just overwhelming. But some things are, are very clear concerning modern-day tongues. One, and this is hard to accept if you're a person that maybe speaks in tongues, but as linguists have analyzed tongues, and many linguists have analyzed tongues from all over the world, all linguists are in agreement it bears no resemblance to language whatsoever. None. And it also, in every instance, the person who speaks in tongues is using sounds, vowels, and consonants that are consistent with his own first language. Always. So if tongues is a universal language, an angelic language, a heavenly language, then it would seem that every person who spoke in tongues would sound the same. But they don't. 
If you are an English speaker, when you speak in tongues, it sounds like English. It's English consonants, English sounds. If you're from Russia or China or anywhere else, you're, the, the tongues you speak sounds like your first language. That is always true. Then there's the issue of interpretation, which we haven't even gotten to. And there is no consistency with that. Many, many blind studies have been done on people who claim to have the gift of interpretation and they are given a recording of tongues and said, interpret it. And there is no consistency in the interpretation. These are simple truths. Irrefutable. Paul's going to say in chapter 14, I'd rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 words in a tongue. And the medical community tells us that they have actually done neuroimaging, neuroimaging of the brain while a person is speaking in tongues. And the areas of the brain that are identified with language are inactive when a person is speaking in tongues. It does, their brain is not saying this is a language. It's just sounds as far as, the, and Paul says that. I don't even understand what I'm saying. Having said all that, Paul says, don't forbid the speaking in tongues. He puts restrictions on it. He's going to say this is the way it should be, but he never dismisses it. And neither should we, I feel. There's a time and a place it would seem for tongues. But much of what we're seeing today seems to be contradictory to the statement that this is a language. So it leaves questions. So what do we do? It is not to go against tongues. It is not to go against the person who speaks in tongues, but it is to say, don't elevate this. There are too many questions about it. And scripture says, itself says this is not the greatest of the gifts. It is spectacular, it is sensational, and that's the problem. Because it's bringing all the attention to the person. And church is about the body being edified. And that's why he's going to say in the first part of chapter 14, why is prophecy the greater gift than tongues? Because when a person speaks in tongues, the only person being edified is the person who speaks in tongues. But when somebody prophesies... Because he's bearing testimony of Jesus, everybody in the congregation is edified because everybody can understand what's being said. And so we should not, again, love says, love says, if I speak in tongues, I should keep it to myself. Because love is about the betterment of everybody else. And tongues betters nobody but the one speaking in tongues. That's where Paul's going with this. So if you're really being motivated by the Spirit, driven by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, you're not going to come to church and start speaking in a tongue where the only person that gets edified by that is you. That's like going through potluck and taking all the food. <laughs> what were you thinking? It's not just about you, right? And so, but, but tongues, there's no way to get around it. The only person who is edified with tongues, Paul says, is the person speaking in tongues. That should be reason enough by itself to not make it a focus and a big deal because nobody else can appreciate what is so valuable and dear to you. We need to be concerned more about others than for ourselves.
That's what this is really about. What a blessing to be a part of the body of Christ. There's nothing like it in this world and never will be. When we can have such unity and, have, and, and receive such tremendous grace to be loved so fully and perfectly, unconditionally, why would we want to make it about isolated personal experiences? Whatever the experience would be. We don't preach experience. I had this conversation recently with the students, and more and more I'm telling parents that think about sending their kids to his hill. Because every ministry, every church, every parent church, how do you try to get people in the doors? I've got something that will change your life. Come here and have an experience that you won't get anywhere else. God forbid. We proclaim Jesus. Come and hear of Jesus. Learn of Jesus. Grow in Christ. Hopefully understand more fully who he is and your identity in Christ. But don't come to his hill in order to have a good experience. We're not marketing experiences. We are proclaiming Jesus Christ. And sometimes knowing Christ deeply and intimately can cost you everything. Persecution, suffering, sorrow, and yet you know Jesus. And you wouldn't trade that for anything in the world. But if life is all about good experiences, tantalizing experiences, sensational experiences, then there's no unity. And the body of Christ is destroyed because of experience. We preach Christ and Him crucified, Paul said. And I'll close this in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the various times in our lives that you seem to just break into the darkness and make yourself so very real to us. Where we just feel overwhelmed by the sense of your presence and your love and your grace. Thank you for those times. Thank you for those experiences. And you know exactly when to give us the experiences that we need. But Lord, I just would fully acknowledge that our faith is not built on experience, but on the revealed truth of your word. And whether we have experiences or not, we know, God, the truth. And we stand in it. And we can be immovable and steadfast because of the truth that we have in Christ, who is the truth. And I just pray, God, as you are good to bring different experiences to us, that we would not become preachers of those and seeking to proselytize others to those things. But that we would just simply give Jesus all the glory. And that we would speak of him and not ourselves. And that we would want others to know him and walk with him. And give you the freedom, Lord, to be free in each life. And to work in each person as you would choose. Sometimes that will be hardship and great suffering. Other times it will be times of great blessing. But as we've sung so many times, God, whether it's in plenty or in want, Jesus is our life. And it's Christ that we want to proclaim.
Christ that we want to know. And I thank you, God, for this birthright privilege you've given us of being in such vital relationship with you that we can hear from you and speak from you. What a blessing. It's not just a doctrinal creed that we give assent to, but we have a personal relationship with you. And in this, God, I pray that we would always yield everything that we believe that you're saying to us, to the authority of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.